0: Hi, welcome to my podcast of Bible Stories. Let's start with a little introduction. I was born in 1972 in Southeast London to a strict Jehovah's Witness family. In this podcast, I will tell about my experiences growing up in a high control religion, my doubts that I had at an early age, and the struggles and conflict that these doubts caused not only to myself internally, but with my family, both during my time as a Jehovah's Witness and long afterwards when the programming and core beliefs that were given to me and many others have had a sustained and sometimes catastrophic influence in my life. How I ended up in a psychiatric ward at the age of 18 and the damaging and harmful situations that I've found myself in with relationships, work and life as an adult. How I unsuccessfully used alcohol and other distractions instead of dealing with these emotions and feelings And I hope this podcast gives those who have experienced similar trauma from exiting a high-control religious group to feel that they are not alone and to encourage those who have doubts about their own faith to ask questions and research the answers outside of the organisation that is supplying all their information. It's not an easy journey and help is needed to reprogram the mind and recover. I hope this helps you along the way. It would probably be a good idea for those who are not familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses to give a brief description about their doctrines and prophecies. The religion started at the end of the 19th century and believed through calculations derived from the book of Revelation that Satan the devil and his demons would be banished to wreak havoc on the earth causing wars, pestilence, famine and plague. This was foretold by the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. was predicted to start in 1914 a date that many christian splinter groups have arrived at this would be where god wreaks his destruction and vengeance on sinful mankind to bring about his cleansing and restoration of the earth to its original design the original design being that man will live forever on earth in paradise the jehovah's witnesses believe that they are god's one true appointed religion and only they themselves will be spared at Armageddon. They also emulate Jesus' preaching work, believing they are saving lives, converting worldly people, and those following false religions to their own. That's why they knock on doors and stand at literature carts in public areas. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, that man was created by God in his image, and only through the sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden have we become the imperfect, ageing and suffering species that we are now. Not only did the Jehovah's Witnesses foretell and expect this worldwide genocide, but from their translation of the Bible, called the New World Translation, they have also taught that all those who have died before Armageddon will be resurrected again to have life on this paradise earth from adolf hitler to gandhi every person who has ever lived and died will be resurrected there will be no more old age no more sickness and no more death the lion will lay down with the lamb again this was taken as a literal prediction of the future and the witnesses believe that animals will return to their original design and no longer hunt and kill each other no one knows when armageddon and the paradise will come exactly Only Jehovah God knows the time, but we are told it is very soon. This idyllic paradise will last for a thousand years, as God keeps Satan and his demons imprisoned in heaven. After this time has passed, the devil will be released again onto the earth to pick out and tempt all those who are not loyal to Jehovah God, who will then be destroyed along with Satan himself and his demons. And then, finally, all of God's chosen and faithful people can live forever, in peace, on earth. You may also be wondering why this podcast is called My Podcast of Bible Stories. The reason is, in the 1970s and 80s, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, Jehovah's Witnesses' official organisation, published a children's picture book that gave their version of events described in the Bible. It was called My Book of Bible Stories, from Genesis through to Noah and the birth of Jesus Christ and the disturbing images of the forthcoming apocalypse and Armageddon. The last page, however, featured the promise of paradise with a full colour artist impression of perfect families lounging happily with pandas and tigers and bountiful overflowing tables of fruit and vegetables in the background. This fantasy was the reality that we were taught not only in the Watchtower publications but also at the many weekly meetings that we had to attend. It may seem hard to believe that over 8 million people worldwide believe this interpretation of the Bible and the events to come. I liken it to someone being told as a child that Santa is real but then never being told the truth. If you were born into the religion, this was your reality. If you converted later in life, You were drip-fed this hope of a better future before the complicated details were indoctrinated. Everyone wants a better life for themselves and a hope for the future, don't they? Anyway, we'll cover some more aspects of the religion and its doctrines during the course of this podcast. I guess we should start at the beginning. 1977. Shame. Every Tuesday, my parents held a Bible group study in their front room. I can remember all the people coming round and sitting on sofas and drafted in dining chairs, sitting in a circle. These weekly meetings are some of my earliest memories as a Jehovah's Witness. And I was only five years old. They were very boring for an energetic young kid who had to sit still for an hour while the brothers and sisters discussed a watchtower book and conducted a simple question and answer interaction around it. The questions were not challenging questions and didn't involve any free thinking or debate. They were just simple, almost childlike. Someone would read a paragraph, and then they would take turns as the evening progressed, and the questions were set at the bottom of the pages for them to answer. This combined with the two-hour Thursday night Kingdom Hall meetings and the Sunday morning Kingdom Hall meetings, along with preaching work on a Saturday morning, took up a lot of time. The Tuesday night group was where I first learned about the differences between boys and girls. We used to go to someone else's house in 1977, and me and a young girl, who was a year or so older than me, used to sneak upstairs afterwards to explore our bodies. It was no more than looking and touching but I can remember thinking it felt nice to be touched down there and it went on for a few weeks. The two of us sneaking upstairs and I remember looking forward to it until one evening my dad came into my bedroom and sat down at the end of the bed to ask me what had been going on. I can remember feeling ashamed. I knew it was wrong and I can remember being told off and almost made to feel like the abuser. I can't remember who instigated it, but one question that has recently occurred to me is, is this normal behaviour for five-year-olds to be aware of their bodies, or is it a learnt behaviour? I have to say, I can't remember any adult touching me intimately when I was a child, but maybe this girl was. That family moved congregations shortly after that. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a very poor record on child sex abuse. After the Catholic Church and the Church of England, they are the third highest reported religion for child sex abuse in the UK. But yet they're nowhere near the third biggest religion. These thoughts are purely subjective, but it was an unusual and traumatic introduction to my body and sexuality, and it made me feel dirty and ashamed. 1982, Learning to Lie. By 1982 I was 10 years old and well versed and indoctrinated in the truth, the term that the JWs used to describe their religion. But something wasn't right. I didn't have any friends in the congregation and associating with worldly people, although not forbidden completely, was deeply discouraged. Apart from my family, I felt quite isolated and alone. I used to come home from school every day for my lunch and one lunchtime, I remember telling my mum that I would swear at school with my friends. She was very upset and disappointed and asked me why I was swearing and what things did I say. Then she asked me a question that stopped me in my tracks. Do you not want to go to the meetings anymore? She said. For a split second I remember thinking, do I have a choice? Is this my chance to say? I don't enjoy going to the meetings or on the ministry work. Could it really be that easy to get out of ever doing it again? But I knew the correct answer my mum wanted to hear and I said I wanted to keep going. But I felt I didn't really believe it. She got tearful and upset. You don't believe in Jehovah? She asked in shock. Again, I had that split second of thinking I could say, no, I don't believe in Jehovah and I don't want to come to the meetings or on the ministry anymore but instead I muttered something along the lines of, "Uh, I'm not sure, which placated her enough to drop the subject. I learnt something important that day, but not something good. I learnt to lie about my true feelings, keep them hidden, something that would stay with me for many years to come. I had lied to avoid confrontation and disappointing my mother, and also no doubt the inquisition that I would have had to endure when my dad returned from work later that evening. However, something important happened to me that day. I suddenly became aware of the fact that I don't really believe in this religion, but I had no choice but to keep quiet about my doubts for fear of upsetting my parents and continue the path I was on. I was trapped. 1983, our own special Christmas. Christmas is not celebrated by the JWs. In fact, its name is rarely mentioned. I do remember though, on Christmas mornings, I used to still wake up early and look out of my bedroom window to see all the living room lights across the street, the children opening their presents and the Christmas trees in the windows. I remember feeling excited for them and thinking how nice it would be to be celebrating with them. Christmas day wasn't all that bad. It was a day off school after all and the Christmas build-up at school was always a traumatic time for a JW kid. We weren't allowed to join in with carol singing, Christmas assemblies, or even making Christmas cards. It was always difficult and embarrassing to approach the teacher in front of the whole class and explain that as a Jehovah's Witness I couldn't join in. I was always embarrassed about that JW label. I used to try and excuse myself by saying, I'm not allowed sir, it's against my religion, but would never specifically use the word Jehovah's Witness. If the teacher probed me further, one of my school friends would announce, He can't, sir. He's a Jehovah. And then the whole class would know my secret, and there would be no escape in the barrage of questions in the playground later. Do you not celebrate Christmas? Do you not celebrate birthdays? Do you have to go knocking on the doors? Do you not have a telly? There were so many rumours and questions. I do remember one art teacher I had one Christmas time who kindly said that I could do a picture of a snowman instead of the Santa that everyone else was drawn. It was a kind gesture and it made me feel included. Missing out on Christmas and suffering the yearly embarrassment of returning in January to all the excited kids asking about what I got for Christmas and having to tell them that I didn't get anything was a difficult experience to bear. I remember my school friends were genuinely shocked when I said we didn't get any presents for Christmas or birthdays. But luckily I never remember being bullied for it I think I was genuinely pitied. I used to tell them that instead of Christmas we celebrate anniversaries instead. That was our Christmas alternative. It's alright I would say, we have an anniversary day. This is where we celebrated my parents' wedding anniversary and they would leave gifts and presents at the bottom of our beds in a pillowcase for us to wake up to, emulating the Christmas experience. I guess they were just trying to help us feel not left out and I can remember waking up early on anniversary day mornings excited just like a kid at christmas and running into my parents bedroom to open up the presents i also remember worrying a lot in the months leading up to this anniversary day i worried that it might never happen because armageddon might come first and i would miss out on our fake christmas celebration and receive no gifts at all On reflection, if I was a true believer, I would have thought that Armageddon would have been a much better gift to have than some toys and books, but I used to lie awake worrying at night, worrying that I wouldn't get to anniversary day, and that Armageddon always loomed heavily over us. 1985. The public and private persona of my dad. When anyone is asked to describe my dad, they always say, What a nice man. Very engaging looks you in the eye and shakes your hand firmly. It's a sign of a sincere man who makes you feel like you are their number one priority at that given moment. A useful tool when going about preaching work and giving talks as an elder at the Kingdom Hall. Just as a side note, only brothers give talks at the Kingdom Hall. Women are allowed to preach, but not to teach. There is a very strong gender bias in the JWs. Back to my dad. Dad was a man who liked his children to be seen and not heard. When he came from work he packed us away to our bedrooms and turned the tv off at weekends he would invariably come down with a migraine although now looking back and knowing the signs myself i sometimes wonder if, if he was actually depressed his irritability his withdrawn personality and after completing his spiritual duties by going on the ministry on a saturday morning he would often take to his bed with a headache we were told to go outside and play and not to disturb him. On the occasions when our play did wake him up, he would come and stand at his bedroom door, or burst into the room where the noise was coming from, and blow his stack. He would shout at the top of his voice, and glare with eyes so evil that we knew he meant business. Once my cousin and I were messing around one evening, too excited to go to sleep. Him in the top bunk, me in the bottom, When the door flew open and my dad scared us out of our skins shouting and glaring because of the noise we had been making and to get to sleep. My cousin had never seen this before and said afterwards in a whisper I thought your dad was going to have a heart attack. His eyes were bulging and his veins were popping out of his neck. My cousin said he struggled to not laugh at the ridiculously angry man standing at the door and I can remember thinking Oh no. Don't do that or you will go completely nuts. My dad's dad used to do the same thing. In fact, he was a very similar character. He was well respected and liked by his work colleagues and associates, but he was a complete bully in the house with his wife and his kids and probably to my dad as well, I presume, although I've always felt that I probably got told off more than he ever did. Isn't it interesting how parents often emulate their own upbringing even if it caused them a trauma themselves as a child. My dad used physical punishment. Occasionally he would cuff me around the head or smack the back of my legs with his big man hands. I can remember doing the classic arch back manoeuvre to avoid the hand as it went for the backside or in long car journeys which we often used to do and if we were acting up in the back seat the hand would be waved indiscriminately backwards and forwards hitting heads, knees, legs, wherever it could to keep us quiet and in check. Needless to say, this behaviour teaches you a lesson that it's best not to evoke the wrath of Dad. My mum used to smack us occasionally too, but it was only ever after ignoring warnings or being told to stop doing something. And it was always done as a meditated punishment. It would be a wooden spoon on the back of the hands or on the backside. It would sting for a bit and you would cry but it was nothing like the unpredictable violent outbursts dad could dish out without warning. And like I say, we learnt quick to keep quiet, get out of the way and not be seen. On one occasion, when I was maybe 12 years old, I was playing with my brother in the garden, teasing him or something, probably play punching his arm, my dad saw this through the kitchen window and it threw him into a rage. He flew out through the door, grabbed me so hard by the arm and off my feet and dragged me into the garage, smacking the back of my legs as I went. And then he cornered me up against the workbench and I could see he'd lost it completely. His eyes were bulging and he looked wild. He yelled in my face, ''You like punching, don't you? Here, have some punches.'' And then he proceeded to punch me repeatedly in the stomach. I was frozen with fear And I can't remember how long this attack lasted or it hurting that much but I can remember the shock of it to this day. Personally I have had violent outbursts of anger and explosions of rage in my own adulthood but I've never whacked my kids in a fit of anger nor anyone else for that matter. My cousin had introduced me to the band The Doors. Although it was just a phase I was going through probably more just to fit in with my cousin and school friends than actually liking the music, I brought the t-shirts, the albums, and a big poster of Jim Morrison, the charismatic lead singer of the band, and I pinned it to my bedroom wall. Dad was not happy. Ideology is a sin in the JWs. They don't have crosses, pictures of Christ, or any other images in the house. This stems from a story in the Bible about Moses Coming down from the mountain to find the Israelites had built a false idol and were worshipping that instead of God. And he threw the tablets down and destroyed them. So my dad wanted me to take this poster down. By this stage in my life, I was probably around 14 or something, I argued against it. The poster stayed up for a few weeks but with constant derision and reminders that I was worshipping a false idol by having a picture of a rock star on my bedroom wall, it finally came to a head, probably after my dad had heard a talk at the Kingdom Hall about worshipping false idols or something, and he insisted that I take it down. Now, I can't remember how I knew this, but I did. My parents had very few records. Nana Muscuri, James Last, an audio version of The Jungle Book, Just some that spring to mind. But my dad's favourite record was Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. I often used to hear him playing it when we were tucked up in bed. I think someone at school had said that the song was about heroin use. And I used that knowledge to my advantage. I agreed that I would take down and burn the evil Jim Morrison poster. But surely dad... You've got an album which glorifies drug use. Surely that can't be in the house either. After all, these are Satan's wicked things and we shouldn't have them in the house. It was reasoning that he couldn't argue with. I'd I'd played him at his own game. And so I took down the poster, I built a brick fire pit in the garden and burned that evil satanic poster. And then I got my dad's favourite LP and I smashed it to pieces with a hammer. All the time he was watching through the kitchen window, probably livid at what I was doing. But there you go, you reap what you sow and rules have to apply to everyone. After that, my dad and I, through the teenage years, pretty much avoided each other. I think a line had been drawn in the sand. Obviously back in the 80s we didn't have things like the internet to fact check these things. And now I know that Simon and Garfunkel's song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and now I know that the lyric, Ceylon Silver Girl, wasn't referencing heroin use and the silver needle. It was in fact referring to his girlfriend, Peggy, who later became his wife as she was getting gray hairs. I feel a little bit mean now. Maybe I should buy my dad another copy of Bridge Over Troubled Water.